Paper Team is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes for creators, entrepreneurs, and curious people everywhere. You can take classes in writing, pitching, and animation. You name it, they've got it. So whether you're picking up a new skill for your day job or figuring out your next side project or pursuing a long-time passion, Skillshare has classes for you. I really loved Roxane Gay's creative writing, crafting personal essays with impact masterclass. It doesn't matter what kind of writing you do. There's a ton you can learn from this great writer and icon. And you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Paper Team listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash paper. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash paper to start your two free months now. That's Skillshare.com slash paper. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we'll be talking about writing for TV dramas from comic book properties to action-driven procedurals and limited series with a very special guest. Sue Chung, who has written for Gotham, Agent Carter, The Brave, The Red Line, and is currently a supervising producer on a new show for Netflix. Welcome, Sue. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, get started. So first up, where are you from originally and how did you end up in the industry and in L.A.? So long story short, <laughs> uh, I was born in Korea and I moved to the U.S. when I was three. And I kind of grew up all up and down the East Coast. My dad was in various grad school programs. So I was basically like it was kind of like an army brat existence. <laughs> and then I moved to New York after college and I spent some years there just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I dabbled in um, magazine publishing, like the beauty industry. And then I just had a bunch of friends who were in film school and they were like, you should really, you should really try this. <laughs> so that's the short version of the story. <laughs> it was a long trek just to get out here. I think by the time I realized I wanted to write for television and movies, um, it was uh, another two years before I could save up enough money to get out here. So yeah, that was the that was the basic part of it. And then I got here in 2012. I knew like maybe four people. <laughs> One of them was in the industry, but the rest of them were not. <laughs> I mean, it's what everybody else most most people have to do, which is just kind of do the hustle. One of the first things I did was I ended up hooking up with some people who got me coverage work, which was really important. And then um, I ended up doing a, a very short stint as an unpaid intern for a production company in Hollywood. And then luckily enough, I got repped and then it kind of went from there. What were some of your earlier inspirations, whether in TV and film that made you want to work in this industry? So my dad just loves movies. He loves, loves, loves movies. And I grew up watching like just... I was just talking to somebody the other day about how um, when I was a kid, the feeling that I got when we went to the movie theater <laughs> and we sat down waiting for the movie to start, like I can't even explain like the joy that it brought up inside me. And so my dad was really a big fan of like Friday night movie nights. And I remember going with him to the store to like Blockbuster or sometimes not Blockbuster because he said it was too expensive <laughs> <laughs> and going to like the mom and pop video store. And spending like a good hour there with my dad picking movies for the weekend. And so that's the kind of stuff that I, I remember a lot. And just, you know, the full awe <laughs> that you feel as a kid when you're watching a movie that you love. But I didn't think that it was something I could do until, you know, 
long time later. So you touched on some of your first jobs in the industry and you said one of them was doing coverage. Did you kind of learn a lot about what to do and what not to do from reading scripts like that? I think coverage is the best teacher <laughs> any screenwriter could ever have <laughs> because I think it also depends because there's the the kind of coverage that you do for production companies and studios and agents and things where, you know, you're reading fairly well put together pieces and you're just you're just explaining what they are for people who don't have time to read everything. But the other kind of coverage is doing coverage that is for people who want help with their scripts. It's reading things for competitions. It's judging competitions. It's that general kind of thing where you're seeing the full spectrum of what's out there, of what people write. So I was lucky enough that I had a job pretty early on when that one like window of time when Amazon had opened up their <laughs> their kind of uh, floodgates. They were letting anybody submit their scripts, you know, to their production studio. So I used to get paid <laughs> to read these things and just to either pass them forward or to say, this is not, you know. It was like that first screening process. And I think it was such an invaluable teacher because – I mean, automatically right off the bat, there are so many scripts that come in, scripts, I will put that in quotes, <laughs> where the person has no idea what they're doing. You know, they've written them in Microsoft Word. <laughs> they're in very varying fonts. <laughs> like, none of it is formatted correctly, you know, and those are automatic no's, obviously. But I would be patient in some of the ones that came in through Microsoft Word, you know, if they were formatted correctly, it was clear the person just did not have final draft. And so those I would bother to read, <laughs> but the rest of them were automatic no's. And then you get into the next kind of stage of screenwriting, which is people who know how to format things, but people who don't know how to tell a story yet. And it just runs the whole spectrum of that to like really, really good scripts that were really well done. And so I don't know, it's, I think sometimes when you see things that are not good, it actually teaches you a lot more than reading the stuff that is good because it just tells you, it just shows you all the mistakes that you should not make yourself, you know? So I thought it was really invaluable. Now you also mentioned uh, getting repped. What was the process for you to move to finding that rep? How many scripts had you had by that point? What made the difference in your mind? I have been writing since I was probably 12 or 13. I was a huge bookworm. So I used to submit to writing competitions all the time as a kid. And then in college, I had a couple of professors who would let me submit creative pieces for like my junior paper and stuff. And they were very supportive. And one of them said to me, you know, if, if you, if you want to do this, if you want to be a writer, like, I think maybe you should try it. And so I had been writing for a long time. And then at a certain point after college is when I first started writing a screenplay because my friends were, I'd written a novel that was just too many pages. <laughs> and my friend said, you should, you should try a screenplay because the screenplay will keep you to like a hundred pages and it'll be very plot based. And so, you know, it'll be a good exercise. And so I did that. That screenplay is terrible and no one will ever read it, <laughs> but it was helpful in that it was the first time I realized, oh, this thing that I love, which is movies and television, I can see maybe because I've loved it so much, like I just inherently understand like, oh, this is how you tell a story in this way. Um, and so by the time I got to LA, I had written like two features and a handful of pilots, you know, they, they were all bad. Like, no, no, I'm not going to show them to anybody, but it, it was just, you know, that kind of, you have to get the bad stuff out first if you're going to try to try to write well. And then 
when I got to LA, I took a summer course at UCLA. So I ended up with another half of a feature there and I had another pilot. And then I ended up taking a workshop that was very pilot based. And so I finished a pilot there and then won a very small competition with it. And that was how my first manager found me. So that's how I got started. What are some of the biggest differences you find between writing a feature versus a, a TV script, especially a, something like a TV pilot? Um, I think the features are harder for me because my brain naturally goes toward other, like, you know, what are the various pathways of like more story that you could tell? You know, I, I, I don't tend to think of things in a very finite sense. Um, I just naturally want to, if I come up with a character, I want to take that character through like 800 different like scenarios. <laughs> and so it's actually a lot easier for me to conceive of a pilot and think of, oh, the like n numerous episodes that I would, I would be able to tell this way. I think features, you have to get very simple with the story. And I think that's the part that's a challenge for a lot of people because you want to tell a big story sometimes, but even the big stories have to be centered around a very small story. And so I mean, that's really the main difference. And I think because right now I've been um, working in TV for, for, for several years now, it's um, it's become more second nature to think in more of a pilot like sense than, than a feature sense, but I'm trying to get back into it. <laughs> uh, so how did you go from getting that rep and winning those little competitions to your first actual staffing job on TV? So I have a very unusual in into the industry. And I say this because I'm not trying to discourage anybody, but I don't think it serves anybody to think that this will actually happen to them because I know myself that what happened to me was very lightning strikes, you know, but I got in because I sold a pilot. I was, I got repped by my manager. He brought me to an agency and this was around March of that year. And so they were both telling me, you're a baby writer. <laughs> Nobody knows who you are. And so um, it's a little late this staffing season to try to get you out there. It likely won't happen. We'll try it, but it likely won't, won't happen. And so um, let's focus on you writing a, a second pilot. Let's focus on something else. And the pilot they had signed me on was a murder mystery. It was a small town like kind of dark murder mystery. And because I grew up with watching these movies with my dad and I was, I really wanted to write action stuff. I told my manager, I really want to write an action spec pilot because I'm a woman and I'm a person of color. And I was like, I just don't think that anyone's going to believe that I can do this unless I actually do it. And so, um, so I sat down and I worked on this pilot and then I finished it in July at the end of July that summer And I handed it to my reps and they came back like three weeks later and they were just like, we think we're going to be able to sell this. <laughs> and I just, I mean, you could have, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And, and then another couple of weeks passed and they said, yeah, we're going to be able to sell this. And that's how I got started. And we went that season, we pitched it to networks, we sold it to ABC. And then um, the rest of that year into the next, the first couple of months of the next year were spent working on that, developing that. And then ABC did not pick it up to pilot And then the conversation became, all right, now we have some fans. Now we have some, we have got, we've got a credit behind you. Now let's staff you. And so that's how I ended up getting staffed. And do you have any tips or advice for people in that sort of intermediary period towards the bottom level on the version of being staffed or writing mm -hmm. their second or third pilot in terms of getting staffed? Um, I feel like it's important to be patient 
I've seen some people, even in my my time here, like I got here in 2012. Since 2012, I've seen people give up and go. I really feel like if you are a good writer and you are persistent and you have a good attitude about the slog of it, that eventually your time will come. But I also feel like there are a lot of people who are missing one of those three things. I think some people will give up too easily. I think some people don't focus hard enough on getting their writing to the right place. And they think just being an assistant long enough is enough. And then I think some people are not great assistants. <laughs> so it could be, it could be a, you know, a combination of things. I just think ultimately it's your writing really needs to be at a level where your showrunner can trust that you're going to submit a, you know, a first draft of an episode that's going to be minimally problematic. And by problematic, I don't mean bad. I just mean something that the, the showrunner is not going to have to like, you know, rebuild from the start. And so I always tell people, I think I didn't even realize this when I first started, but you know, that first few levels of being staffed is really just how can I be of the most assistance and the least problem, you know, how that that's really what it is. And so, yeah, I would, I would tell people really to focus on the writing of it. I think some people get really impatient, and they want to jump into the writer's position really fast. But I've also seen a couple of people like kind of flame out a little bit because they were they were staffed before they were really ready. And I think it can be very demoralizing if you're staffed and then you have to go back and do something else, you know, if you have to uh, go back into the assistant pool or take temp work. And I've seen this happen a bunch of times. And so I think really like what you want to do is make yourself very invaluable when you get in there. Well, to that point, how what, what do you feel makes the difference between someone who is valuable in the room and someone who is not? I would say don't be a negative person. <laughs> Don't be a Debbie Downer. <laughs> I mean, I think everybody says this, but it is true. And I've seen people make the mistake of doing it. So it's definitely something to look out for, which is don't crap on a story idea that someone else has just in general, don't crap on it. Even if you think it's the worst idea ever, there are ways that you can train yourself to talk around it without, because it should be a safe space. Like the writer's room should be a safe space that People don't feel stupid bringing up ideas, even you know, because sometimes you do need to throw out the dumb idea for someone else to pick that up and be like, oh, but if we turn that on its side, like what, what's the good idea that can come out of it? And you don't want people to censor themselves. So don't be that person who's like, I don't like that idea. <laughs> or like, that's that's stupid because don't don't say those things and, and really just focus on um, training yourself when you hear a bad idea to be like, that's really interesting. Let me think about that for a second. Like, like what kind of consequences would that have for this person over here? And sometimes just talking it through that way can help you come up with a better idea, you know? So it's, it's really that kind of stuff, I would say. And also just being aware that, you know, just because your ideas are not getting up on the board does not mean that people are not noticing your contributions. There's a lot of, I think, insecurity. And I've been there, like just this feeling of like, oh, like, I'm not contributing because they don't take any of my ideas, but it's it, it's a very shifty place, <laughs> the writer's room. And so I would recommend that people just chill. <laughs> yeah. And so what was your first day or week like in the writer's room, especially going from having worked solo, writing a, a pilot and writing these features and stuff to now working with a bunch of people in a room? I like working with people. I think that I am kind of an ambivert. <laughs> and so it doesn't, it, it's not, it, it it does get tiring sometimes, but I'm not one of those people who can't deal with, you know, eight hours in a room with people. I like 
tossing ideas back and forth. And so for me, like that part of it wasn't such a huge transition. I think the hardest part every time I start a new room is the first couple of weeks. It, it is very draining to pay attention constantly, you know, like just have to like really absorb what everybody is saying because there's, it surprises me every time because you realize like there's a lot of passive listening that we do in life, but in the room that it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fly because you really need to be able to like, you know, hit the ball back. So. And what about getting that first script? What was the the process like? How did you approach it, especially coming from having written samples on spec? What was that process like for you? I think it's not every case is like this, but in general, I, I like the fact that when you're in a room, you have other people help you beat out the story that you're telling in that episode. And so it's like, it takes some of the work off your plate. I like the fact that you are heading into writing the the script with um with a full outline. I feel like that does maybe not half, but it does maybe like a quarter of the work for me. And so I'm just I just need to get to that get through that other 75%. Yeah, I th- I think that's the part that I think is really cool. Is is I do like writing by myself, but I also see the benefit and really enjoy writing in group settings and I've written just like acts of episodes before because sometimes you're running out of time and everybody has to write the episode together and that's also kind of a weird challenge (laughs) i don't know i think it's just trying to be fast on your feet you know just the writing fast is the other part of it that i think is very is a very strange and specific skill that you develop as a tv writer (laughs) Uh, so after you have that first room under your belt how do you go about finding the next job i was very lucky that I, my agent was pretty proactive after my first job to get me staffed on another job. Because there, I, I know, I know plenty of people who, you know, they get their jobs on their own, and and you know they had, you know, they had to call up every contact they had. Um, I was lucky enough that my agents were always working for me, so they, so that's how I got my first job. That's how I got my second job. It's how I got my third job. You know, so I, I don't know. What else to add <laughs> other than, you know, they sent me on the meetings and then I went and talked to showrunners and I, I was like, please give me a job. <laughs> and obviously that's great. But have you had any kind of periods of instability where, you know, you weren't sure if you were going to have a job next year or that kind of thing? How do you manage that? Well, I think every year is like that. It's um, I always get scared about where the next job is coming from, regardless of whether my agents are working for me or not, it, especially because I think staffing season for network, because up until this last job, most of my like most of my jobs have been for network, and that staffing season is really stressful, and it does things to your body that you would not have predicted before. <laughs> but I just remember the first time I really went through it, I just could not deal with, because like I said, I'm an ambivert. I'm fine dealing with people, but there's a certain level of increased extroversion that's required when you go on these showrunner meetings that after a while can really take a toll on you, and so. There's always anxiety. There's always, you know, this freak out that you're having. And every year, what ends up happening is I call my manager toward the tail end of staffing season. And I say, I'm just, I guess I'm just going to get used to the fact that I'm not getting a job and I'm just going to have to go work at Starbucks. That's fine. That's fine. I can totally deal with this. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And literally right that it it usually tends to come right before a job (laughs) because I've just hit the breaking point, you know, but I don't know. I think everybody has their own coping mechanisms. There have been plenty of times that I've been turned down for jobs that I really wanted. And I think it's just, again, reminding myself that I can't leave town. (laughs) I can't quit. What I'm trying to do here is more valuable to me than 
the temporary sting of all the no's and the, you know, and the freak out. <laughs> well, on that, you've uh, made your way successfully from being a lower level on Gotham all the way to being a supervising producer level on your latest show. What have been the different responsibilities that uh, have been entrusted in you as you moved up the ladder? Well, I think it depends on the showrunner, but I think in general, up until about co-producer, you're you're really there to contribute in the room. You're there to write a decent first draft of a script. You're there to support your showrunner and upper level writers in whatever capacity they need you to do so. And then I think hopefully by the time you're in the mid-level range, you know, they're just entrusting you a little bit more. They're, they're telling you a little bit more about what's going on behind the scenes. You are probably being tasked to help um, help figure out some solutions to problems that may be coming up. They may ask you to write a little bit more of someone else's episode. In general, it's it's just, I think the level of responsibility changes depending on the showrunner, but it's also, you should hope that by producer level, your showrunners are depending on you a little bit more to pick up whatever slack is happening, maybe not because people are not good at their jobs, but just because, you know, I always say that TV production is like a bullet train. And when it's going, you can't stop it. <laughs> so hopefully you're just making that process easier. Uh, so working on Gotham, were there any particular comics or runs that you drew upon for inspiration in the storylines? Or were you really trying to do your own thing in that universe? Well, the cool thing is that DC kind of opens up their back library and they're just like, come and take all these like comic books and you can read, you can take and read as much as you want. So it was a really, because I had... I got into comic books because um, of Buffy, actually. Um, I grew up reading, you know, what, like single issues here and there when I, you know, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a childhood like comic buff. And then I watched Buffy and I was so upset that it was over. <laughs> and then they started coming out with season eight in comic form. And so that's how that was my gateway drug. <laughs> um, so it was kind of cool to go into that back library and just read, just have this very comprehensive education on the history of Batman. But some of the favorites that I liked and I would refer to constantly were um, The Long Halloween. The I think it's just called Arkham Asylum, but it's a really creepy one. I think it's Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison. <laughs> like, it's, it was just a really creepy one that like, you know, like, because um, I, I wrote, I, my episode was the one about Arkham specifically. And so that was one that I used a lot. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, looking at your experience on Agent Carter, what was the process of breaking stories on that show, especially uh, since it's uh, so important, or at least uh, her character is so important to the MCU? Yeah. We had so much fun on that show. <laughs> that was a that was a really cool experience too because um Stephen McFeely and Christopher Marcus, who are the guys who wrote all the Captain America movies and the Infinity War and Endgame, they were at the time they were shooting they were in production on Civil War, I think, but they would pop into the room when they could, whenever they were in town. Um and so we had their insights and then we had a couple of Marvel reps in the room constantly who are also just huge fans of the sh of this specific show and this specific character. So it felt like it was an interesting thing where I don't know that I've worked on another show since then that was so very specifically about how much we all loved the main character. You know, we just really, really loved her. We wanted every story to tell like her story to the best of its ability. And so it just was a great experience because even though it is an action show and even though there's a comic book element to it so it's very it is very plot driven it also felt 
at the same time on a parallel level, like extremely character driven because everything was about Peggy and her journey and her growth. So it was a really unusual, I don't know that there are a lot of shows that operate in that way, especially for women. Uh, given that Adrian Carter was kind of a period piece, how did you manage balancing the, the tone and the feel of the Marvel Cinematic Universe while still maintaining the kind of period feel to that as well? That was just really the, the fact that the showrunners um, had a very specific voice and a very specific voice for Peggy. I, I feel like I was probably one of the people in the room who was a little bit more... Because I I came in in the second season, I had to shake a lot of that like very period language <laughs> really mm-hmm. fast. But the idea is that she, you know, like Peggy is, she is a modern woman, you know, like she's a modern woman who is out of time. <laughs> like mm-hmm. she's living in this world where she is out of her, the time where she would, she would really like fully be of the era. She's, you know, and so uh, it wasn't, it wasn't so so crazy to imagine her just having this like rise sense of humor, having this kind of, I will not take crap from anybody kind of attitude. Um, and it helped that uh, the actress and the other actors on the show, they they all have a very great rapport with each other. And so the, the back and forth just was very natural. There were a lot of conversations of just dumb asides that they would say to say to each other and writing for that kind of tone was not difficult given the situation. <laughs> now, a few weeks ago, we had Tamara Becker Wilkinson on to talk about her experiences working on uh, DC and Marvel properties, more so on the cable and OTT. And so I'm kind of curious what your experiences have been in, in uh, writing for comic book properties on more of the broadcast side. Oh, yeah. How did that work? I think it's a little bit, it can get a little frustrating because you just can't get away with as much. I think think there's also um, sometimes it's not true all the time, but I think sometimes the cable and streaming services will throw a little more money at the project. So you have a little bit more to work with in terms of effects and things like that. And also the speed at which we had to get through the seasons. But I don't know, I feel like both of those shows, we were given a lot of leeway from the corporate parents (laughs) about what kinds of stories we could tell. I'm imagining that speed is a huge factor because if you don't have to churn out scripts on a broadcast production schedule, you might be able to take your time with building out more set pieces and coming up with different avenues to go. But, um, and you, and you could probably prep for shooting like a lot more complicated stuff, but you know, that's probably the one drawback. So moving on to working on the brave, how was it transitioning into more of, I guess, a a traditional kind of action driven procedural type thing with the case of the week? That was a great show to learn more about the producing side of the job because it was it was a beast. <laughs> I don't know that they expected it from the beginning, but um, what ended up happening was the original pilot that I read of that show, it had a little bit more of the home life. You know, you, you had a little bit more showing these soldiers back home and and just dealing with that kind of stuff. Um, and then at some point it changed and it became a hundred percent just they are on mission. And so it really became this mission impossible show. Every episode, every episode was this crazy action driven thing. And so, and the, and the thing is because there are two elements to it, there's the people on the ground and there are people back in DC who are watching this all unfold over comms and screens. You end up having to shoot a lot of things twice. (laughs) 
So we ended up having these really crazy situations where like the scripts themselves, if you broke them down, would be like a hundred scenes. Wow. And so just how do we fit this in eight days of shooting? That that part that was the part of it that was super challenging, but it was also very fun because the episodes never let up. Like it's just literally like one action piece to the next one to the next one. And it was, yeah, it was so fast paced. It was so fun to shoot. It was, it was stressful, but it was fun. And I think it's interesting trying to fit those moments of humanity and character in between, in the kind of interstitial moments, because there really wasn't very much room after all of the action stuff was happening to sit down and just unpack everything. And so I'm really sad that show didn't get a second season because <laughs> there was a lot of like cool stuff, both character wise and, you know, action wise that, that we had to tell, but what can you do? <laughs> well, to, to that, can you talk a little bit about how you approached breaking sort of the, the case of the week or at least generating ideas for missions on a week to week basis? We did a lot in the first month or so, maybe not full first month, maybe the first three weeks where we put up a giant map of the world <laughs> because it was one of those things where they had to travel around the world all the time. So we put up a map of the world and we really, the other fun part was on a challenge level, we were shooting in Albuquerque. <laughs> <laughs> I think originally they had intended for the show to be mostly taking place in places like Afghanistan. And so they figured Albuquerque is a good place to kind of get that, you know, what ended up happening is they decided to change it to around the world, which is really hard in a place like Albuquerque because it's landlocked. So you can't do cities near the water. <laughs> you can't do cities in general because Albuquerque does not have a robust cityscape. <laughs> and then on top of that, like there are only so many places in the world that have that kind of mountainous dry. <laughs> you have to see all the deserts of the world. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we would just pick these places in, on the map of just like, where can we go that geographically sort of resemble this place? So we did that first. And then we were talking through our favorite movies and our favorite, you know, um, you know, we talked a lot about like somebody would bring up three days of Condor and we would talk about that for a while. And then we would talk about Ocean's Eleven. And just so everything became this thing about like, what are, what are these great kind of spy and action stories? Like, what are they about? What is the kernel of it? And so we, we kind of broke it down into, we want this one to be a heist. We want this one to be, you know, an escape. We want this one to be a rescue. And so we ended up doing a lot of, of that first to figure out like what we wanted to model it after. And then it became more of a granular, let's talk about like the specific kind of heist we want to do. So it was really, we really broke it down by like type of action set piece. <laughs> and uh, moving on to working on the red line, how do you go about kind of uh, portraying these very topical social issues and representation and inequality and, and doing them justice uh, through the story? We had a lot of help from, you know, we, we were lucky enough that there were a lot of organizations that wanted to help us tell the story really well. And so color of change was one of them. They do a lot of advocacy and they put us in touch with people who had, um, for example, one of our characters was gender non-binary. So they put us in touch with people who were gender non-binary. So we could really talk to them about, you know, what are the things that you find to be super offensive about living in this world and miss them, you know, when people misgender you, et cetera. Ava DuVernay was an executive producer on it. And she brought in a couple of families who had lost loved ones to police violence. And that was a really sad and eye-opening thing. And so it was just, 
it, it was, we had to be really careful. I, we, we had a very diverse staff and from the very beginning, our showrunners did a good job making us all aware of the fact that, you know, like we can, this is a 100% safe space. No one will be judged for the things they say. And I feel like we just ended up becoming friends and just talking like very openly about things that we have experienced and things that we would want to see ourselves. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of talking to the actors and seeing what they were comfortable with. I feel like it was, it was a entirely group effort of just listening and paying attention to what are trigger points for people and what people actually think is missing from the conversation. So on the writing side of things, how did you approach writing a more limited series compared to the more classic traditional network run? It's fun working on something that's limited because it's kind of a long movie. <laughs> so you can pick the ending that you're going for and then kind of work like in, you know, you have your beginning and then you have your ending and you kind of work inward. And that's pretty much how it happened. We weren't just like writing episodes and, you know, aiming for some kind of a finish line. Like we, we kind of knew what the whole piece was before we started getting into individual episodes. It's nice because then if you're working inward, there's a little bit more uh, space to write toward theme because you know what it is. There's a little bit more space to create like a through line that you can follow pretty easily. I think sometimes when you're just working on serial, um, maybe not even serialized, but if you're just working episode to episode to episode, you may have a general idea of what the end goal is, but that end goal isn't the end of your story. And so it's not quite as contained. So working across all these different shows, what were some of the differences in the approaches to the writing, uh, working on more serialized shows versus kind of procedural or episodic? I don't know that there really has been a difference. I think that on serialized shows that I've worked on, Maybe the only difference really is that we're not thinking of like, we don't have to try so hard to think of like B and C stories because they're kind of already existing. You know, you're just carrying them forward from the previous ones. Whereas like on a procedural show, you really are trying to figure out like, okay, well, we know what what the actual like, what what's going to happen in this episode. But like, what have we not touched on in the last couple of episodes? You know, like who, which character, which supporting character have we not focused on? It's that kind of a thing. So it's a... I, I really think that's probably the only because even on a procedural show, I still think of them fairly in my head as like a serialized story because you're still talking about the same characters and you're still, you know, like there are consistencies throughout every episode that to me feel like I'm just telling another chapter of this long story. So I think maybe it's really just the B and C story stuff that is different. And have you had the opportunity to be a writer on set for some of your episodes? And yeah. what has uh, your experience has been? I've been really lucky in that aside from Gotham, I've been on set for all of my shows. I love being on set. It's one of the one of the things that I did before I got in the industry. One of the ways I got into this is because I was helping a lot of my friends who were filmmakers. I was helping them on their short films. I just like the energy of being on set. I like the fact that you're actually seeing how community-based this industry is and how you need you really need to rely on so many other people to help make it a thing. I'm really not a morning person, but on set, I can really get myself up and going. It's an interesting process. I think you you have to learn how to be unobtrusive, but also helpful on a set. I know I've made mistakes where, you know, I think I need to do things when I don't actually need to do things. And I think that's a fairly common mistake that people make in the beginning. But I think the trick is to 
be there and be available for anybody who has questions or needs help and to always be on the lookout for actual issues that your showrunner may it just, you know, go nuts over. So if the actor suddenly in rehearsal changes a line like to a point where it's completely, it means the opposite of what the showrunner like wants to be said. <laughs> That's the moment where you jump in and you say, hey, like you you talk to the director and you say, hey, like, I just don't think this is okay because my showrunner is going to kill me. What do we do? You know, it's it's that kind of thing where you're trying to build a trust with the people that you're working with. Some directors will not take kindly to that. And that's also a lesson to learn. You know, it's like, how do you manage it when the director really just does not want to write her on set? I've had that happen to me, but I've also seen it happen to other people in many worse ways. And so it's it's really just developing a lot of people skills and, and, and management skills and trying to figure out how do I convince this person that what I want is also what they want. <laughs> And it's it's a fun challenge. It's very stressful at times, but it's it's really fun. <laughs> You're playing 4D chess with a director. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So have you been present in the, the editing room for any of your episodes and had the ability to kind of give input into cuts? And what was that experience like? Yeah, I've been in editing a little bit, not too much. I tend to stay out of that because I think sometimes it can be many, many cooks in the kitchen. I've had a couple of showrunners be really cool and, and want me to watch cuts and give input. And so I tend to limit it. I, in general, when, when people ask me to watch cuts of anything, I tend to limit my, I'm not a, I'm not a huge, um, let's take it apart and put it back together kind of person. I tend to be very, very, very surgical with my notes and just be like, you could lose like two seconds out of this shot. I think you could lose this one line here you know it's 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 more more of that kind of stuff and i limit it to probably like five notes every time just because i don't i don't want to overwhelm anybody and also because ultimately by the time it gets to me it's pretty well executed and so like for me it's really just trying to make it go a little faster move a little smoother that's all it is now looking back at the development and pitching side of things uh evidently you you sold the pilot so you were successful in some capacity i'm curious your uh not just your experience but if you have any advice about pitching how you approach pitching and uh if there's anything you brought into the room okay unless you're an actor Pitching is hard. <laughs> um, I would say really in general, like even if you're extroverted, even all those things, like uh, like it is a strange thing that they ask writers to do in this industry. I was completely blown away when I got here and because I assumed when they said, oh, here, we're going to sell your pilot. I thought, oh, well, it's already written. All this work is done. <laughs> um, but that's not how it goes. They um, They really, really want you to go in there and just – do the presentation of it, you know, and, and I'm not somebody, I, it's not that I have stage fright. I just don't really like to talk in front of people like that. <laughs> and so that was a, that was a very steep learning curve. I think the thing that you have to get used to in terms of pitching is, is number one, I think you just have to do it over and over again. Like, even if it's literally just your friends, I think the more times you run it through, the last, it, it, it really is like, I don't know if, if you guys play instruments, but like, you know, if it's like, if you're getting ready for a piano rehearsal, you're, you're hoping that if you've practiced this thing, like 200 times that it's somehow gotten into your muscle memory. And so there's just no way that on the day of you will mess it up. You know, I have a hard time actually like doing the whole actual performance of it until I'm there. So this has been, it's been a real challenge for me because if I try to do it in front of my managers, if I try to do it in front of my friends, I literally end up just kind of reading it and not 
you know, like acting it out quote, but, um, I, what I end up doing is just reading it out loud to myself and performing it to myself <laughs> over and over again, because there's something about doing it in front of people who know me that makes, that it just makes me feel like I'm so fake. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, this is like, this is lying, <laughs> but I try to run it through probably like, I don't know, like just over and over and over again until the words just feel so burned in that I don't have to be on script because I've made the mistake. That first, that first thing that I sold was I was so new and so green that I didn't know what to do. And they paired me with a showrunner who was wonderful. So basically I wrote out and printed out my pitch and I had, uh, I had put in bold all the words that I wanted to highlight. And, you know, just like I had like written it out in a way that it had the cadence of how I wanted to do the pitch. And it was like eight pages long or nine pages long. And I literally got in and my hands started shaking so badly that I had to sit on them. And then I just buried my head in the pages and I just read. <laughs> I just, and I've heard since then that actually like there are plenty of people who do this because they just, you know, but over time I've gotten much better at pitching and now I'm a little less scared. My hands shake a little bit less. <laughs> at this point, I'm trying to approach it as like, you know, like these people are not scary people. They're people who work in the industry and they just want to hear a good story. And so how can I talk to them in the same way I talk to people in the room when I'm trying to convince them? my pitch is the way to go. You know, if, if if I'm in the room and I'm pitching, like I think character A should go on this like mountain adventure. I'm not going to say it in this way. That's like, I think character A should go on a mountain adventure. <laughs> I don't know. Like maybe it will be cool. I don't know. I, you know, you say it in a room where with your, the people you trust, you say it in a way that's very like, no, it'll be so cool. It'll be like so amazing if we do this. And then this, you know, you get really excited and amped up. And so I try to do my pitches like that now, just to, to remind myself that, you know, the person that I'm talking to is just someone who who I need to sell on my pitch, you know, putting on my story. In, putting you know? in actual emotions. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of just being a robot. <laughs> uh, is there anything you wish you knew about either the craft or the business of writing when you were first starting out? I wish that I had fully understood how much of a business it is. Because I think a lot of people still have this idea of like, but it's art. And it's yes, it is. But it's also the most commodified kind of art. <laughs> Just like I said before, like the fact that um, so the screenplay itself is only 50% of the way there, like you're really beholden to a lot of other people to get it to the finish line. And so it really is important. I don't know that I would say that I didn't know this. I just didn't know how important it was to be a people person, to pay attention to how you treat people and just all of these like numerous things that like working on a team becomes, you know, like I think that's the part of it. It's so not, if you want to write your things, I would highly recommend you write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think that this is the industry where you are going to be happy if that's what you want, you know, because this is this is an industry that really thrives on you have to work with other people. Sometimes you're going to lose the fight about the idea, you know. And what are some of your own long-term goals? Uh, obviously, you're working on a, a new Netflix show right now, but what are some of, of the things you would like to do? Maybe go into features or other avenues? Yeah, I'm hoping that by the end of the year, I'll have a feature finished. I really want to write action features specifically, so... I'm hoping that I can finish the thing that I'm working on. And in general, I just, I don't know. I feel like I have very minimal goals. <laughs> I just want to keep working. <laughs> I just want to keep working on shows that I can, you know, I can find some really cool moments on. I like, I just don't have a huge preference necessarily over broadcast or st streaming. I think both of them 
serve their purposes. But I would like to work on stuff that has a little bit more of a female focus. I like it when ladies kick ass. All right, before we go, we have a couple of final questions. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Oh, okay. Um, I just watched The Boys. Ooh, on Amazon. On Amazon. There are a couple things that are like, hmm, about it. But, <laughs> but in general, I'm really fascinated. And those hmm things, I mean, I think you can guess are about, you know, the ladies. But <laughs> um, in general, I'm super fascinated by the idea of um what happens if like superman went rogue like what what like really if superman were a serial killer like how would you ever stop him <laughs> i watched the other day i watched the first few episodes of succession mm-hmm. which is i can't tell if i like it or not that was because, me initially yeah yeah because it's like i'm like they're horrible <laughs> like do i like these people or not I would say get, give the whole season a shot. I definitely felt the same way in the, in the first couple episodes. These people are horrendous. I yeah. hate all of them. But for some reason, you kind of turn around by the end of the season. Okay. okay. Well, I am fascinated by some of the stuff that's happening. I'm weirdly, weirdly just obsessed with the weird cousin guy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because he's so dumb. Like I'm like, there's no way he can, he's, they're going to eat him alive. It's kind of like the Jonah character in, in Veep. A little bit. So I've been watching that and also have been watching MasterChef, but that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> nice. Uh, do you have any final advice for TV writers who are listening? Do everything you can to get your hands on scripts and read them, even if they're bad, you know, and really try to develop your taste in that specific, you know, vector. And then I would say, keep writing. And really, when somebody takes the time, I will say this, because this has happened many times. But if somebody takes if you ask somebody to read your script, and they give you notes, and they've taken the time to read your script and give you notes, do not just sit on the script. Because I will tell you right now, if you send that script out again without any changes, and sometimes it, and somehow it gets back to that person who like gave you all these notes and they see zero changes have been made, it's just not a good look. <laughs> because it means A, like on some level, you think that the script is perfect. <laughs> and B, it shows some of these writers that you are not, um, that you don't take notes well and I, I think that's actually the thing that, that can really hurt you in this industry. And lastly, do you have any resources you can recommend to our listeners, be it books, apps, websites, anything? Really, for resources at this point, I just read a lot of scripts. I just read scripts. I watch shows. That's what I do now. But um, uh, also, like, you know, we're in the industry. You're lucky enough that you get access to a lot of these pilots that don't even go. And so, you know, you have the ability to read all these things. But ultimately, I just I just think really that's it. I I don't subscribe necessarily to all of the like how to books because I think if they help you that's great. I have my I have the couple that I that I appreciate, but I also don't rely on them. They they're more just like guideposts and less like absolute like rule books for me. So I would just say like do whatever you can to get your hands on scripts and read them. Alrighty, well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, cheat sheets, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in, and thanks very much to Sue for joining us. 
Thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs> and uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at papertmelco slash 152. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Where are you on Twitter or the internet? Oh, uh, Sue M. Chung. Excellent. And uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas, or future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, We're going to be doing another Paper Scraps episode for the month of September. So we'll be taking a look at all of the uh, news around the industry, answering listener questions, all that good stuff. It's going to be a hot scoop. So (laughs) tune in for that next week. All right, we'll see you then.